Hi, I'm James Verdeer and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. For today's episode, I'm joined by a past guest of Bioscience Talks, Nalini Nadkarni, who's Professor Emeritus in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Jeremy Morris, who's Assistant Professor of Biology at Wofford College in South Carolina, and J.J. Horns, Assistant Professor in the Department of Surgery at University of Utah Health. They were here to discuss their recently published bioscience article, Reversing the Lens on Public Engagement with Science, Positive Benefits for Participating Scientists. And that article, as the title suggests, describes the benefits that scientists accrue from doing public outreach. And in particular, in this case, working with people who are incarcerated. I'll go ahead and let them describe the work, though. So let's go straight to the interview. All right. Thank you all very much for joining me today. Great to be here. Thank you, James. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Okay, just to get us started, I think, you know, since we have a, a multi-guest podcast this time around, um, if I could get each of you to, you know, uh, introduce yourselves and that'll give our listeners a chance to put a name to the voice. Sure. My name is Nalini Nadkarni. I'm a professor emeritus in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. My name is Jeremy Morris. I'm an assistant professor of biology at Wofford College in South Carolina and previously worked uh, with Nalini's Inspire program for several years at the University of Utah. And I'm JJ Horns. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Surgery at University of Utah Health. Um, and I also uh, spent uh, a few years working uh, with Nalini and the Inspire program. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so today we're going to be talking about, you know, an article that reverses the lens, as it says in the title, of uh, public engagement with science. And instead of looking necessarily at the effects on, you know, those who are the targets of the outreach, we're going to be looking at the effects of um, the outreach on those who are performing it. Um, so I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about, you know, the program on which this work is based. Sure, I can describe that. Um this program, which is called the INSPIRE program, the Initiative to Bring Science Programs to the Incarcerated, really was us. We started this in response to this very general, very important need to diversify science, the whole enterprise of science. And I think science is now increasingly recognizing that there are many members of society who, for whatever reason, may not see themselves as belonging to the enterprise of science, if not as practicing scientists, then at least people who can understand and appreciate science. And one population, one part of the population of the United States and actually the world are people who are incarcerated, people who, for whatever reason, find themselves in correctional institutions like state prisons, federal prisons, county jails, and juvenile detention centers. And these folks have very little access to traditional venues of science education. They simply legally cannot get to a science museum or enter into school or go visit a zoo or even watch a National Geographic documentary. And so my team and I, starting actually back in 2004 in Washington State, started a program to bring academic scientists to present their research, the reasons why they do their research, why they're excited about doing research, and also some inclusive ways to engage people who are incarcerated in the practice of science and, and nature conservation. And in 2011, we started a similar program here in the state of Utah at the Draper State Prison and the Salt Lake County Jail. And so we recruit and, and guide scientists to present their research as a single lecture once a month uh, to uh, people who are incarcerated, adult men and women who are incarcerated at the Draper State Prison and Salt Lake County Jail. Okay, great. And so, you know, I, I want to, of course, get into, you know, the substance of the article very soon. But I was hoping we could just talk just a little bit more um, about what that program is like, you know, what are, um, what's it like for the scientists who are going to be engaging in it, you know, and what's it like for the people who are incarcerated who are going to be participating in it? You know, is this um, a, a room with a small workshop of five people? Is it, you know, an auditorium with 150? Um, and, you know, and how are the, the scientists prepared for, you know, giving these types of lectures? 
Right. Well, actually, there are many venues and many sort of situations ranging from extremely small groups of, say, incarcerated youth. It might only be four or five to large lecture rooms of 100, 100 people who are incarcerated. And I think I'll turn it over to Jeremy, um, who has had a lot of experience with actually recruiting and guiding the scientists from University of Utah to participate in Inspire. Jeremy, can you describe that? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, so uh, we actually recruited we didn't even have to have to recruit actively. We just through word of mouth. Once we started doing this program, um, we get we would get so many volunteers, uh, both from within the University of Utah system, so professors, um, other scientists, graduate students, and even other institutions uh, from from around Salt Lake City. And so the process for um, basically getting them from you know wanting to participate to actually giving their presentation was to recruit them, sort of ask what their interests were, why they wanted to do it. And then we had a, um, a, a kind of a formal process where we would take the topic they wanted to present, they would show us some slides, and then we'd sort of talk through how to translate that from um, an academic audience to a public audience. Um, and so, yeah, we it would often involve many rounds of going back and forth. We would adjust, you know, things like showing the right kinds of graphs, specific language to use and not to use um, and things like that. Um, and then uh, for the actual audiences, the two places that I was working primarily were the Utah County Jail, where we would go into a cell block, um, the same cell block every month. And we would have anywhere from usually about 45 to 50 um, people who are incarcerated come out of their uh, their cells and, and join. It was totally voluntary, but most people do actually come and join because it was really interesting. And there's not a, there's not a ton of um, highly uh, intellectually engaging things that happen for them, unfortunately. Um, and then in the prison, in the prison, we did it in a in a much bigger room, in an auditorium. And we, yeah, as Nalini said, we would have anywhere from like seventy to hundred people um, per lecture. And so that was, yeah, I mean, both places were incredible. Um, and it's so it was so nice to have that many people that volunteered to come and, and hear the talks. And they were well received. They the audience asked excellent questions, and often engaged with the scientists in a way that was super unique. Um, for them, and very different than what they would get either in a classroom at a university or from other scientists. I just want to jump in on this, if that's okay, James. Um, you know, Jeremy has said this very straightforwardly, but I really can't emphasize enough how this program really allows us, an academic to enter into a different world. You know, on campus, faculty members, graduate students, postdocs are sort of the kings of, of the coop, so to speak, and we walk around freely, we're respected, uh, we can engage with really anyone we want to in any way we want. We can shake hands, we can put a hand on a shoulder of a, of a student, and it's, you know, that's just the way it is. But when a scientist enters our program and actually gets transported in a car that's driven by one of our staff people to the Draper State Prison or to the Salt Lake County Jail. I've watched and observed and felt this myself. There's this moment, this moment when the scientist enters into the state prison doors and there's this double click, very loud click, click, click of this double lock that happens as you walk through the first door, you walk through a space, and then there's another door with another double lock that you walk beyond. And so you've crossed this portal between what we think of as regular life into the world of the incarcerated. And there, it's a very unsettling feeling. You know that you're surrounded by people who have been convicted of crimes that involve violence in some cases, not in all cases, 
but that there's such a sense of restriction, there's such a sense of hierarchy. And you as this academic, you know, famous, wonderful, academic, respected person really is just a, a little tiny cog for these two hours of giving your lecture in this machine of mass incarceration. And it doesn't mean that you're threatened physically or even emotionally. It's just, I think for most academics who have never had an experience in a correctional or carceral environment, to realize that there are 2.3 million people in our country who are living like this every single day with no access to nature and extremely little access to education. And so just that act of moving into that portal, across that portal, I think has tremendous impact on the scientist as he or she walks into that. And I think that shouldn't be discounted. I think it's a very brave thing, a very wonderful thing for scientists to actually take that risk and to trust our program enough to know that they'll be safe, that they will be contributing, they will be offering something that's important to the people on the inside. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about, you know, what they're offering. What what sorts of things were they lecturing on, you know, in, in these settings? JJ, you want to go for that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, you know, it was it was really a huge range of, of different topics. Um, people were giving lectures in sort of the area of their expertise, but because so many people were interested in participating. I mean, we had lectures on everything from uh, uh, conservation biology to molecular genetics to, to ballet to, to geography. I mean, I mean, there's so much, uh, there were many different types of people um, uh, who are, were interested in participating in this that, I mean, these lectures could really be from week to week on, on incredibly different topics. And that was actually one of the really interesting things um, uh, to me and kind of in, in sort of uh, talking to folks and, and sort of seeing um, uh, people's reactions to these lectures uh, were because they're getting this really um, uh, diverse look at different topics from week to week. Um, it was really interesting to kind of see how they were uh, relating uh, one topic to another or kind of sparking new ideas and new things they wanted to hear about um, uh, in these kind of survey responses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for the listeners to somewhat, you know, people who, who read the journal of bioscience, I think it was really interesting to know that over 70% of our 160 presentations that we analyzed for the paper that was published in bioscience, over 70% of them concerned biology. And some of the topics uh, included astrobiology, virology, anatomy, physiology, parasitology, botany, microbiology, biochemistry, anatomy, and molecular biology. Um, so the rest of the topics were physics, chemistry, urban ecology, and so forth. Um, but we got a very strong repre representation of biologists. And we don't really know whether that's because we ourselves operate out of a biology department. So we're, we're sort of familiar and we, we can walk down the hall and say, hey, how about giving a lecture in the prison? Or whether there's actually more interest on the part of biologists to connect with these kinds of audiences than maybe physical scientists or social scientists. So that could be something that we would investigate in terms of interest and uh, commitment to in terms of the, you know, sort of what what areas of science are of, of greatest interest in terms of both the people who are incarcerated, but also in terms of the volunteer scientists who participate. Right. And, and I'm now wondering about, um, you know, the effects on the people who are incarcerated. Let's let's talk about that briefly before we get, you know, fully reverse the lens and, you know, turn it back onto those who are performing the outreach. Um, you know, I, I think that you know, that's been described well in prior literature. Uh, but what sorts of what sorts of effects do you see among that group? Well, um, Jeremy and I just, uh, well, not just, a couple of years ago published a paper about the positive effects of these lectures. Again, I want to emphasize that these are not credit-bearing courses of the way some correctional um, education exists, but rather they are 
just one lecture after another, once a month, whatever the topic, whoever was interested in it, we didn't take attendance. We did count the number of people in the audience, but we weren't giving academic credit for these. This is kind of a precursor to that, which we hope might happen in the future. Um, but Jeremy, why don't you talk about the different benefits that accrue to the in inmates or to the people who are incarcerated? Sure. Um, so we would give surveys before and after uh, each presentation, and they would ask questions that that, that assess someone's identity with science, whether um, trying to get a sense of, of their connection to science and if they if they had um, like negative associations or positive associations. Um, many people that are incarcerated have uh, negative associations with STEM fields um, because of, po of poor educational backgrounds or lack of support. Um, and so we really wanted to see if these had an impact in shifting that their self-identity, um, how they thought about science in relation to themselves. And so most of the questions focus on that. And it turns out that um, that you know what we what we were hoping to see we did find when we analyzed all the data from I think the first couple of years of doing this program. Um, yeah, the results showed that that um, the participants had a shift in their in their self identity. They become more became more positive about learning science, about communicating science to other people. Um, they uh, they indicated that they were, had more just positive affect towards science and STEM fields in general. Um, and even some positive um, shifts towards a greater interest in conservation um, and, and things like that. And so it, it, the, the results were, um, were very encouraging. And I think a, a great reason why um, Nalini ended up expanding this program into so many other different places in Utah. Including, including the youth programs. We also found that there was an increase in science knowledge content. For um, Jeremy, mentioned, Jeremy mentioned these surveys that we gave, and, and all of these surveys also were administered with the oversight of our institutional research board, our IRB. So we, we carried this out under the oversight um, of the Human Subjects Review because people who are incarcerated are considered a vulnerable population for obvious reasons. Um, but another thing that we learned is that there was an increase in science knowledge content on the part of the incarcerated, at least what we were able to look at, which was short-term science knowledge content um, increases. So each of the surveys had three questions, three factual questions that we asked them that were particular to that topic. You know, if it was parasitology, we would ask them three questions about parasitology, that they would learn material from that lecture. And then in the post-lecture survey, we were able to see whether there was an increase or decrease in terms of their knowledge. So it was got very rough, you know, very kind of um, approximate way of judging whether or not there's, there was actual knowledge content transmitted, but we did find that there was, um, that there was a positive response to that, which I think is significant. And, and I would just add to that, one thing that really stood out to me in some of these uh, pre and post lectures is, is like Melody and Jeremy were saying, uh, from before and after lecture, we saw this really huge increase in, in science content knowledge, uh, in their perception of themselves as, as science learners. Um, but uh, for a few folks that uh, would come to these lectures every every week or every month when they were when they were offered, we actually saw that the more lectures they attended, their desire to learn more about science increased every single time they saw a um, another lecture. So they weren't just kind of following this this sawtooth pattern where they were interested right after, but then kind of dropped back down to a base level. But their interest in, in learning more about science just continually increased over time as they saw more of these lectures. And so it's kind of this, this uh, uh, self-perpetuating uh, cycle here where the more exposure that um, uh, can be offered to these types of populations, the more it increases interest and more increases curiosity. And the more of these uh, folks who are incarcerated, they're more likely to seek out that type of uh, knowledge and learning on their own, on their own time. 
I think another really cool thing, actually, this was from a paper that that JJ um, uh, was the first author that was published uh, recently in PLOS One, is that you know, we, we, we analyzed the data over many, many of these lectures. And one of the results was what JJ just described, which is the more lectures that a person who's incarcerated is exposed to, the greater the desire for, for more science information. But what was really cool was that even a single lecture or one or two lectures had a very positive effect in all three of the the results that we were kind of hoping for, one being science knowledge content, another being uh, shifts in self-identity as science learners, and the third being sharing this information with cellmates or with family who are visiting. So so even a single lecture can have a, a positive impact, which I think, you know, from our standpoint, we know that academics, people who are in academia, whether they're graduate students or faculty, have very limited time in terms of what they can extend beyond what they're doing in terms of their teaching, their mentoring, their research, and so forth. So knowing that even if you can give one lecture at, at, a, at a correctional institution, you're going to have an impact and that you don't have to think, oh dear, I have to commit to a whole semester or a whole year of this. That having this program that allows scientists to participate what NSF calls in the aggregate with a continuing program that's sustained, a single scientist can have a large impact in terms of transmitting science information and as well as encouraging a population that doesn't have access to, to science education uh, can have a really positive response. And I think that's very significant because not all academics can devote a ton of time, but many academics can devote a small amount of time to this sort of activity. Yeah, I, I appreciated that, you know, in, in particular, the, near the end of the article, there's an analysis that shows, you know, uh, the number of scientists who are interested in participating in this kind of program and the number of correctional institutions and the fact that, you know, you, you certainly have the personnel um, to have a large effect. Right. Okay, so let's switch around a little bit and let's talk about the effects on the scientists. You know, what's that that double clicking door closing behind them as they enter this new world. The, the effects uh, from your survey results don't seem to be that they wound up intimidated and um, frustrated by the experience. They, they came out with very positive feelings toward it. That's correct. Um, there's, there's sort of a couple of different areas where that positive effect came out. One was many of the scientists who participated self-reported that they felt they became better communicators, especially with people who have diverse learning backgrounds. And so I think the coaching that that they received from Jeremy and JJ and our other staff members and graduate students, I think helped them understand that they can convey scientifically sound information in straightforward, direct ways. Uh, they might have to take the error bars off their charts because, you know, we don't need error bars in this case, or they may not quote what the p-value was, but we were able to give them guidance in terms of using graphics, using simple text, using large letters, because many of these the people who are incarcerated have, have difficulties with literacy and with reading. And so we gave them some of these hints as they went along. But what they, I think, came away with, one of the things they came away with was an understanding that you don't have to dumb down your stuff when you're talking to public groups. You simply have to clarify it and state it in direct and clear terms. I think a second thing that our scientists benefited from uh, was a sense of purpose, a sense of contribution. And I don't know about you, but I know that sometimes when I get into a certain mood with my own research and I think, oh my God, you know, this stuff is so obscure. And, and like, what good is it doing the world to publish some tiny little paper in a journal that five people are going to read? I think that many of the scientists, and in fact, they self-reported this in our surveys, found that they got a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. 
And I think especially for our younger scientists, our emerging scientists, that is becoming more and more important. We know it's important to contribute to the scientific record, but it is also important and perhaps equally important to know what our impacts are in terms of our research on society. And so by this simple participation of providing a lecture or a conservation project to people who cannot get access to that by reading an article or watching a documentary film, I think these contributing scientists um, had a sense of purpose and value and contribution that they did not get, or that was in addition to the satisfaction that they get when they publish a scientific article or give a paper at a scientific conference. And I think there's another aspect here, which is about the sense of desiring to contribute to social justice. Yeah, that was uh, just really, uh, I think, interesting and maybe almost uh, unexpected outcome here is that uh, you know, these scientists were, were interested in, in giving these lectures. And uh, like Melanie said, I think they came away with a lot of professional values, uh, professional um, uh, benefits where, uh, you know, they, they got experience explaining um, their science to a different audience. And, and I think uh, I, uh, what Melanie said is right on, like, we're, none of this was dumbing down science, right? It's explaining it clearly. And if you can't, I, I think that's a, it's, Actually, a lot of people solidified some of their science in their mind because if you can't explain something clearly, you probably don't understand it fully. And so um, I, I think there's that sort of professional benefit that came along with a lot of this. Um, but yeah, a lot of people, what, uh, what we found in some of these analyses is people came out with this uh, significantly increased desire to understand uh, more about social justice and understand social inequities. Um, and, and a lot of people actually reported that they were motivated to take action and actually after this experience went out and did take action for uh, various social justice causes. And I think associated with that too, JJ, was this, this shift in perception of incarcerated populations, populations mm -hmm. who are incarcerated. <laughs> but I think many of them went into it thinking, oh, these guys are bad, they're dumb, they don't have education, and they won't care about science. And we found just the opposite. Um, so in addition to this idea of social justice, there was also, I think, this sense, and I'll, I'll just give you one of the quotations that we included in the paper. Um, my interaction with incarcerated individuals really opened my eyes. Previously, these individuals were a number or statistic that I hear on the news. After meeting individuals, I felt empathy for people in this situation. And I, you know, that was recounted over and over again, that I thought they were going to be this way, and it turns out they are really interested in science or they really want to know more or they want to get a job in STEM and how do they do that? And, and so I think there's, you know, it's so funny, uh, James, because, you know, our policy is to drive the scientists to the prison or to the county jail and then to drive them back so that they feel reassured and that if anything comes up, we're going to be taking care of it. And it's so funny to listen to these scientists on the way down to the prison you know, we go down I-15 and we have like half an hour to talk to them. And they're, they're sort of talking about what their expectations are and thinking, oh, well, I don't even know if anybody's going to come to my lecture and if they're going to be interested. And then on the drive back after the experience of, of delivering this, this lecture and getting the questions and the comments um, from people who are incarcerated, you can just see this transformation in the way that they view this population of people that they really had no experience with before. And so that, I think, had a lot to do with the sense of motivating many of these scientists to say, what can I do? And again, a couple of quotes. Um, it has made me a much stronger advocate for bringing similar programs to the incarcerated. It has motivated me to take more actions. A couple of years from now, I plan to design programs for young adults from minority families. 
Yes, I will write to my congressman to advocate for criminal justice reform. I joined the local chapter of Black Lives Matter. And I think, of course, those are individual quotations. And, you know, we only work with, you know, 160 individuals, but these are individuals from an R1 institution who are busy, who are deep into the system of the academic reward system. And yet they did sense this, both this sense of perceptual change of a group of people who live in our country and our society and this desire to do something more for it. So I think that is, you know, maybe it doesn't belong in a journal that's devoted to the, the study of biology, but more and more I'm thinking this does belong in scientific <laughs> journals because in the larger sense, it's really what science is all about. It's our vision of advancing society through science and we can do that. And this little tiny program in one state I think is a little small demonstration that we as academics have a place everywhere in society, including correctional institutions, and that people who are in correctional institutions have a place in the scientific enterprise. And one thing I kind of added about this sort of perception of inmates, um, th this was a really cool thing for me and, and Jeremy Nalini, maybe you feel similarly, but you know, we were doing these, we were analyzing these survey responses from these scientists who've given these lectures and we're able to see we're like, oh, wow, yeah, like, there's this really large and, and statistically significant increase in, in their perception of people who are incarcerated. But then I know for me personally, uh, I, I felt it was really cool to also be on the other side of that, having, you know, uh, before I um, joined the Inspire program as kind of an analyst, um, giving some of these lectures in these correctional facilities and ha having that experience where I was driving down and really not knowing what to expect. And then just having this audience that was so engaged and asking these really like creative questions that I would never have thought of. And I, I had spent years giving uh, lectures to undergraduate classes and I've never gotten questions as good as I did to some of these uh, who were incarcerated. And so it was really cool to kind of see both sides of this thing where you see it from a statistical analytic standpoint, but also really kind of be experiencing boots on the ground uh, framework as well. I think there's another aspect of this double lens that we talked about in the paper, and that is not only did the scientists, I think, change their perception of this group of people whom they had not had contact with, but also I think this program, the presence of scientists inside a prison or inside a county jail or inside a juvenile detention center shifts the perception of those folks in terms of who is a scientist and what do scientists think and how do they behave and what do they care about? And I think we've really managed to in some ways explode the notion that a scientist is a guy with the white guy with glasses and uh, all he care or she cares about is work in her lab or at her field site. And they don't care. These scientists don't care about anything that goes on in society. So for someone who's incarcerated, who might have been incarcerated for seven or 10 years to see a scientist who's a woman or who's a brown woman um, walk through those that portal, that double lock portal, and who would freely give, you know, an evening to provide a lecture, to share insights, to share information, to share excitement, to share inspiration with people who don't have access to that. I think that has gone a long way in terms of shifting the perception of scientists by this element of society. And I think that's pretty significant, especially in this era that we're experiencing right now, where there's such distrust of science and scientists for very important decisions, things like COVID, things like you know STEM research, you know stem cell research and so forth. So again, this isn't just about Jeremy talking about his biomechanics information you know, for his dissertation to a group of 80 people who are incarcerated. It's also about how does a scientist present him or herself to 
chunks of society that may have an erroneous idea of what scientists are like. So that's been an important objective of this program as well. Yeah, I was wondering, do you think that this will have, and this is the part where I ask for you know um, speculation from you, uh, do you think that this will have an effect on you know the uh, the biases, explicit or implicit, that the scientists may have held about you know other members of the general public, um, you know, as well? Is that is that also playing a role here? Um, I, I would say almost certainly. I mean, yeah, there's, uh, you know, it it kind of like Nalini was saying, it, as an academic, it's so easy to sort of be insulated in your academic world because you've got a lot to do and you're constantly talking with other academics. And so there's there's certainly plenty of different sort of segments of the population that maybe um, you don't have regular contact with, including people who are incarcerated. And just having, making this kind of inroad and, and getting to know people personally, uh, I think makes that connection in your brain where you're like, you know, here, here are these human beings, here are these people, these individuals that, that um, I had just, just great experience with. They're, they're these really, you know, fantastic people. This is probably not an isolated thing, right? This is any uh, group of the population I go to talk to, any sort of people I go to talk to, they're all just going to be, they're all going to be people, they're all going to be individuals. Um, and I, yeah, I can't imagine that this wouldn't make those same kind of uh, connections for other, for other groups. Yeah, I agree with everything JJ said, and uh, and and one thing I also think about is um, Sinolini started other programs at Utah with that that do public engagement work in lots and lots of public venues, not just um, to incarcerated people. And I think after this experience, I think a lot of the scientists who participated came away with that and thought, "Oh, I can do this anywhere, right? Um, if I can go into a prison and give a presentation." To, to prisoners, to people who are incarcerated in prison for some of them for very long periods of time, um, I, I feel much more confident doing this anywhere. And I think that um, the likelihood of those people doing public engagement in other venues increases because it just seems it seems so much more possible now um, after maybe going into um, going into a venue that seems maybe the most challenging one that they've that they've encountered before. Mm-hmm. And what's so interesting, too, about this program right now, here we are in 2022, is I think that there's reinforcement for this kind of work. And I don't just I don't mean just scientists going into a state prison. Uh, I mean, scientists stepping outside of academia and engaging in very real ways, uh, very in, in synergistic ways in exchange, not just outreach, but exchange with other public groups. I think this is congruent with forces that are coming from the bottom. That is, there are more and more graduate students that I encounter here in Utah and across the country who really want to do something that has meaning in society. And at the same time, we're getting pressures and directives from the high-level administrators, the director of the National Science Foundation, um, you know, the head of the National Academy of Sciences. And, And we're seeing that there's this sort of requirement now to, to put in valid broader impacts in your NSF grants. And so that's having more and more import in terms of the competitiveness of NSF grants. And I think, you know, I think to have an article like this in a, sci- in a scientific journal, I think, is also a manifestation of this increased interest in connecting science and society. So I think young people have a role in this. I think science administrators have a role in this. I think individual faculty who give permission to their students to take time to do this. And I think people like you, editors of journals, have all, also have a role in, in moving forward this, I would say, this sort of imperative now that we're feeling more strongly to 
make science more inclusive in ways that academics can accommodate into their academic careers in ways that won't endanger it, but will rather benefit it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that that's something that, you know, we're, we feel very acutely at bioscience and, and more broadly within AIBS, you know, about the need for, you know, that sort of outreach and respecting, you know, those top down and bottom up forces that interplay. Um, I'm wondering now about uh, institutions and what institutions could do to better support scientists in doing this kind of outreach. Well, I'm beginning, I know after the, gosh, 40 years that I've spent in academia, 20 of which I've spent doing a lot of public engagement work and broader impact work, I'm sort of crystallizing an idea that I have in my mind that I think about, which is the broader impacts trajectory. You know, every graduate student pretty much has a conversation with his or her major professor at some point during his or her graduate program about his or her research trajectory. And the major professor will say, well, let's think about like, what's the next grant you're going to get? Or let me introduce you to important people in my field at the next meeting we go to, or here's some funds for a pilot grant for your research so that you can do those preliminary experiments. And I really, and just encouragement really on the part of the researcher to encourage a graduate student to, to progress along his or her research trajectory. And what I've been thinking about is what are the elements of a broader impacts trajectory? What is it that still maintaining the general academic reward system, because we're not going to change that, what, what is it that academics at different levels and in different roles can do to augment and enhance and facilitate the broader impacts trajectory of a, of a young scientist, for example? So things like giving access bringing in a, a science communication training program. You know, and there are many of them now across the country and making those available to graduate students or young faculty, providing pilot grants. You know, the Dean of the College of Science here at the University of Utah could easily set aside, you know, 20,000 bucks to give a graduate student or a young faculty member a $5,000 pilot grant for developing a cogent broader impacts event or, or program. Um, so these are small things that don't disrupt the whole academic system. You know, we can't say, oh, well, broader impacts and public engagement should have a major role in tenure decisions. I mean, that would be nice, but that is not going to happen because of the, you know, just the, the momentum of, of the existing academic system. So we've been thinking about and talking about what are the kinds of things that an editor of a scientific journal can do, that a scientific society can do, like offering trainings at annual meetings, uh, like deans can do. They can offer pilot grants for broader impacts activities. And faculty members, especially senior faculty members who are models for young scientists can say, I think it's a great idea for you to give a lecture at the Draper State Prison and pat you on the back for that instead of saying, what? You're wasting your time giving a public engagement lecture instead of sitting at the bench and working on those samples? So I think there are a lot of small ways in which academics of all stripes can participate and contribute to the promotion of this connecting science and society. And maybe Jeremy and JJ have other ideas because they have more recently gone through the academic system much more recently than I have. Do you guys have any recommendations? You know, for me, uh, I, I think I was lucky because I had a graduate advisor who was very supportive of public engagement and, and outreach. And so I, I never felt that pressure to, you know, um, forego things like that in, 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 and focus on research or anything like that. Um, uh, but I think uh, sort of, it, this is something that I think that takes time, but it, it, it's kind of what, what Nalini was saying. It has to be this culture shift, right? Right now, uh, when you think about 
when a lot of academics think about self-worth, they think about how many publications do I have? What's my level of grant funding? How many citations do I have? Um, and it, this is probably something that takes, you know, a, a, a generational culture shift, but thinking about, you know, how many lectures did I give to a general public this year? Like, and, and having those things be just as important. Um, I'll, I'll add that, uh, I mean, maybe here's, there's a theme here. I also had an, an advisor for my PhD that was um, very open and encouraging and even participated in the program um, more than once. Um, and so that, yeah, that gave me some freedom to, to participate as a, as a newer faculty member now, that's not quite the case, unfortunately. Um, and so, but I mean, I, I guess the, the way that I can be, um, think about this in a positive way is that there is a movement now to provide more funding and more faculty lines for community engaged learning. And that is a, that is a way to get both faculty and students into the community, um, and, and, that that kind of program could foster something like this and so um if that if that progress continues then maybe that would be a way to get younger faculty involved because i mean as it is now as nalini mentioned um for younger faculty you know we're expected uh to do our own research and then typically you know the, the service work and public engagement comes later um which is really unfortunate because yeah i mean as as we've been talking about so many of us that do this work during our, our graduate school days are, are fired up to do it, to continue doing it. And then, uh, unfortunately you have to take a break for a while, which is a real, a real tragedy. Yeah. That sounds like a frustration, especially, you know, given I, I noted in the, in the results that, you know, a hundred percent of your survey participants re would recommend, you know, participating in a program like this. That's right. I just also wanted to mention, uh, especially for our listeners, James, is that one of the things that we've done in the process of building this program and tweaking it and trying to improve it and evaluating it is we've written a little handbook called How to Go to Prison. And it's intended for academics like us um, who would like to be working a little bit more with other populations outside of academia and specifically incarcerated populations. Um, and so it's sort of a how-to. Like if you want to do this at University of Missouri or at Princeton University or at some other university, here are the best practices that we have come up with. And that document lies right now on my website, nalininotkarni.com. And if you go to the prison area, you'll see a little menu item that says how to go to prison. So if you're interested in starting a program like this um, and maintaining it and, and, and providing a pathway for your colleagues, your faculty, your graduate students to present science and conservation projects to the incarcerated, then I recommend that you just take a quick look at our handbook and you might there might be some things there that could be helpful um, in terms of starting your own project. Excellent. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, Great. That would be fantastic. Uh, before we close out, I just was wondering, you know, what's next for the work? Uh, you know, we, either the either the studying of the effects of the of of these uh, you know interventions, or um, you know this kind of work itself. You mentioned earlier the possibility of um, academic credit. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're kind of expanding this in several ways. Uh, one way has been to engage with actual other other science agencies. We've been working with NASA, for example, with education people there to provide lectures on astrobiology uh, at, at prisons across the country. So there we're getting some support from another scientific agency who would like to spread what they do. And of course, NASA is always very enthusiastic about getting their information out to every single citizen in the United States. Um, and so we've been able to take those lectures across the country. So that's kind of expanding what we've done in Utah to other, other prisons. 
A second way that we're expanding on this and growing the program is by working with incarcerated youth, the juveniles who are incarcerated. Here in Utah, we've gotten support from the Utah State Board of Education to bring scientists and conservationists um, to five juvenile detention centers in Salt Lake Valley. And so we have monthly lectures and conservation projects like raising milkweed for monarch butterfly conservation that's done by the students, the, the, youth, the youth in custody themselves. And then a third way that we're moving forward with this is to um, work towards getting these classes to be classes, you know, that these lectures actually fit into a curriculum. And we're working now with Dr. Aaron Castro, who's in our College of Education, to gather funds that will pay for tuition for these incarcerated students um, in order to provide a, a, an integrated class that actually provides academic um, uh, credit. And this winter, this winter semester, we're starting our first, we've started our first class called Science Right Now. And it's basically sort of cutting edge research coming out of the University of Utah. And every week, one of our scientists goes and gives a class or a lecture that contributes to a larger class. The students take quizzes, they get academic credit. Um, and so we're hoping that this can build into other credit bearing classes within the prison. It's It's a difficult fight because Many people who are administrators in prisons do not see prisons as places of education. They see them as places where correction takes place, and many equate that with punishment. Um, so that punitive side of incarceration is often in attention with the rehabilitative side of incarceration. And we're trying to kind of move, move those, move that very large kind of mindset towards more towards rehabilitation. But we're grateful, you know, for whatever access that we can get inside of these correctional institutions. And whether it's for credit or whether it's not for credit, what we have learned from our formal evaluations is that it does provide access to science information, to science and scientists, and their enthusiasm, their passion, and their concern for society in ways that we think is, is positive and productive. Great. Well, I think that that's an excellent note on which to leave the conversation. And I would thank you all very, very much for joining me. I've learned a lot today. Fantastic. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.